0: Gosh, this message was supposed to be easy. It was supposed to be one of those easy messages. I mean, it just sort of all came together. It was going to be just so easy. Uh, it was going to be like one of those little, uh, uh, what is it, layups. You know, in basketball where you got a really easy shot, and you just got to just lay it up on the basketball. You know, Actually, maybe I'm the wrong season. It's football. It's one of those things where I am wide open. The defense has busted. I'm wa- I've just got to catch the ball. And I'm gonna get a touchdown and I, I totally dropped it I dropped it guys because it was supposed to be easy okay so here I guess I should go back in time a little bit it, on Wednesday I believe it was on Wednesday we had what is called the uh, we had a Red Cross blood drive is that something we have every year have we had that pretty much every year for a while yeah. um, well I was really 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 wanting to donate blood I really wanted to do it, but, uh, well, well, you know, because it would just, I knew it was going to, I knew about Ubuntu, I knew it would fit so perfect, I wanted to do it, but when I woke up on Wednesday morning, I had like a little, you know, sort of a, a tickle in my throat, you know, a little sore throat, now people have told me maybe it was allergies, it could have been allergies or whatever, but I had sort of a little bit of congestion, and a little tickle in my throat, and as I, was, I wandered over here, and they were pretty well full at that moment. I wandered over here, and I, was, and I saw on the little list of things to, if you should do it or not, and if you are not feeling your best, if you're not feeling well, that you should not give blood that day. But that's not really why I didn't do it. That's the official reason, but it's not the real reason. The The real reason is a little different. What, what? The real reason has to go, I've got to go back in time to the very first time I've ever given blood. And that was when I was 18 years old. I was 18, I was a senior in high school, and we all were just, we all, it was sort of what you did when you became an adult. You would give blood, it's sort of that deal, you had to be 18 to do it, and I remember we all got out, there was like 30 of us, and we were, they had the big bus there, it was a blood mobile, and they had the big bus there, and it lined up there, and we're all excited, and we just wait, and wait, and wait, I mean, it was so slow, and I I don't mind not missing class, believe me, I mean, I was all, I was cool with that. But, I mean, like, it took like an hour or whatever before I got up there. Now, here, I've got to pause for a second. I've got to pause for a second and let you know where I was in life at the time. I had just joined the tennis team. I had never really done a lot. I hadn't done a lot of athletics, but I had just joined the tennis team and had won in the previous week my first and only match, a doubles match. With We were the worst players on the team, and yet we won that match. And I was so proud of that. When we won that, the moment there was so incredible. But either way, I was doing that. I finally get to the line, the very front of the line there, and I see that they're all lined up, and they're like, next. And there's this woman there, and she's sort of surly. She seems, I guess she's tired of dealing with high school kids or something. But she was sort of surly, and she said, okay, are you Next. And I looked down, and I was like, I looked down, and I saw that there was only one machine left on the blood mobile. I mean, they only have, you know, have, they, and I was like, I can't, it was going to be my right arm. My, my tennis arm. And I was like, I can't do it on the right. I I, I can't do it on the right. She's like, oh, she just looked at me like she was just tired of hearing it. And she said, go, no, everybody's been doing that. Everybody wants to do their left. You're doing your right, and I, and I looked at. There were so many people behind me as well. I mean, it was just. Uh, so I, I, well, how bad could it be? I've never done it. They say it's just like a tickle. <laughs> and so I, you know, I line there, and she does it. And she wraps the thing around me and does the thing, and she's like, she ooh, <laughs> oh, boy. it hurts. It hurt. It hurt so bad, and. And I'm like, oh, okay. And she goes, "Like, keep squeezing this ball. Keep squeezing the ball. Squeeze the ball. Squeeze the ball." And gosh, it hurts so bad. And I keep squeezing that ball, and I don't know what's supposed to happen, but nothing's really coming out of my arm, you know. And maybe a little bit of blood or something like that. And I swear, I mean, I keep saying, "Is this the way it's supposed to?" Keep squeezing the ball. And so I kept squeezing, and it was like 20 minutes later, and I said, I don't know if this is right. I, you know, I've seen people go since I've been here. Something's, and somebody else had to come along and look at it and said, oh, my gosh, she'd gone through my vein. Like with one of those big old things, gone right through it. And she's like, oh, my gosh. And so she, the, this other person came and fixed it and made it go. And, of course, it starts going like crazy as soon as that happened. Well, afterwards... My arm had terrible bruise on it, and was sore, and it hurt, and I, I never, I had to take a couple weeks off from tennis, I never got back on the team to ride, just never, it was hard, I lived on opposite end of town, and that was the end of my tennis career. I could have been Andre Agassi, remember that guy? It's long hair, you know? <laughs> nope. Well, anyway, so I was, I was thinking about it. I was thinking about doing it. I sore her throat. I was looking. At, and I looked up. And wouldn't you know, I mean, there's no way, but my gosh, it was the spitting image of that woman <laughs> who was taking blood here. I went, there's literal, I have no, it cannot be possible. But she literally looked identical, with, just with white hair. I mean, literally the same. Uh, so I just, I didn't do it. But it could have been a perfect story. You know, the idea... I mean, so when you give blood, it's not, you only, it's, it's not just your one unit or whatever. They divide that into eight different units. And they could give that to eight different people. I mean, it's a very beautiful and wonderful thing, this idea that this kind of gift can... Sort of the idea of the universal blood, so to speak. And knowing what this was about, I thought it would be perfect right through my hands. Well, I guess you know now, today is World Quaker Day. I don't know if you knew about it before today, but you, you do know about it now, I guess. I really didn't know about it before a couple days ago, so it's obviously been circled around my calendar for a while. But uh, it is today, it is today. And, and the theme of this year's triennial which is sort of a gathering that all the little Quakers get together in some part of the world by FWCC, Friends World Committee on Consultation. All right? Okay. Uh, Anyway, they get together every three years. In this coming year, they're going to get together in South Africa, which is sort of a unique thing because there's not a lot of Quakers in South Africa. There's only like 80 in Southern Africa. But the theme of the conference, or the get-together, is Ubuntu. Ubuntu. Ubuntu, which is a word and a concept I'm just starting to get familiar with. Uh, to sort of just to tell you a little bit about it, you can find a little thing here in the bulletin. It's something by well, what Barack Obama said at Nelson Mandela's memorial ceremony. And here I'm going to read it. There is a word in Zulu, Ubuntu, a word that captures Mandela's greatest uh, gift, his recognition that we are all bound together in ways that are invisible to the eye, that there is a oneness to humanity, and that we achieve ourselves by sharing ourselves with others and care for those around us. Now, I could have have read something by Desmond Tutu or Nelson Mandela, but sometimes when they get into it, they get into these long stories, and I thought, I don't know, I can't really get too far down that road. But what I wanted to say is that when we look at Ubuntu... This idea, what it means exactly is, I am because we are. Or you are. It's, it's sort of odd in the way you translate it. I am because we are. I exist because we exist. And I think it's interesting that they went with the Zulu here, because Zulu is a Bantu language, and... Uh, there's not a lot of Zulu speakers that are Quaker. But there are, there's like maybe 30. But there are 120,000 or more uh, that speak Luya, which is the large language that they speak in Kenya, which there's just, like I said, over 100,000, maybe 200,000 Quakers that would speak that language, which is also a Bantu language that also has a similar word just like this. And the word for that is similar. It's Amundu. Again, the idea that I exist because we exist. That our, my own existence is interrelationship to the existence of yourselves. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean? I mean, how do we really see that or whatever? Well, it's sort of interesting. In 1902... Oh, hold on. Let me see if I'm going... Hold on, no, 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 hold on, hold on. I may be skip- skipping ahead here oh no, I think I messed up. Oh no, hold on, here we go. The, the word is Omundu, and da, da, da. No, here we go. So in 1902, three Quakers had a vision. They had this crazy vision. They were from Damascus or Canton, Ohio, actually, Canton, Ohio, and they had this vision that they wanted to plant a mission in Africa, specifically in western Kenya. And they were basically like college kids, I think, or just outside of college. They were very young, and they went around the country raising money for this crazy mission that they had in their head, this vision that they had in their head. And their last journey, they took to England and Ireland, raised a little bit more money there, and then they came to Western Kenya. Again, this is 1902. And they were sick as dogs. They were sick and miserable, whatever. They went to the British, and they bought 1,000 acres at 65 cents an acre. And the British were happy to sell them this land at 65, 000, 65 cents an acre because it was rotten, horrible land. It was the kind of land nobody wanted to live on. It was just forest land. You can have it. And even though they were sick and they weren't well, they climbed to this top of the vision, and they said they had this, there was a vision they had on the top of the hill of what they were going to do. And it was incredibly fortuitous because the people that they, sell, they settled amongst were called the Marigoli. Have you ever heard of those guys, from the Marigoli? There's a different, that it, it's sort of a, uh, the name that they, that's what they call themselves, is, but they're also, their name on the outside is called the Peacemakers. It's the yellow. So their name outside of them because there's an idea that here are these Quakers they go all the way and they land in this place and they happen to land in a village or community of peacemakers. And they say there's always this traditional story that I heard a long time ago that I found out was not true that some chief somewhere said, "Yeah, okay. These Quakers got a lot of money. Yeah, all right. We'll be Quakers for a bit." Like, it was like that. That The chief is the one who did it. But in fact, what it was is these these ministries, the shops, and the, the missions, and the things that they engaged in were so attractive to the local population that they signed up. That they were willing to sort of go, their Christian journey would go through the Quaker's. And it was just a powerful and beautiful thing. And and there's an article written by a guy named Stanley Ngesa who describes what it was when the Quakers came. And he talks about his grandmother. He says, you know, these Quakers came and we liked what they had to say. We liked what they had to say because they talked about peace. And we were for peace. And they talked that there is that of God in every single person. And we believe that. It's part of our peace. And and the last thing she said, but I don't think that they've gone far enough. Because it wasn't just seeing God in every person, but they would say seeing God in everything. Everything living and non living, from the forest to the mountains, have a spirit, and she regarded them, or they regarded them as ancestors, as people who can give us truth, visions. Dreams, something to listen to. Now, the Tariki or the Marigoli are famous for, I'm going to say it's okay. I hope this is all right. Their circumcision ceremony. Very famous for it. In fact, if you were to look up Tariki, the village, the collection of villages where these Quakers are basically well, centered, that's what they're famous for. They're famous to dances and festival for their circumcision ceremony, which takes place every five years for boys eight to 12. And it's just, it's famous. It's absolutely famous. You look it up right now, you'll see it right there. And they dance in their little costumes and they have all these things. And they're very famous for it. They've been doing it thousands of years. But most of the Quaker missionaries and ministers that I talk to, um, they're not fans. They're not big fans. The ones that I talk to were not really big on it. Because even though they've been doing this a long time and it's really important to the culture, you know, not all those kids come back. Right, 2% of the kids, 2 or 3% of the kids that go out in the forest and they have the circumcision ceremony, it's a pretty tough ceremony. And back in the day, they'd use an old flint knife that wasn't real. It was, it was deliberately done to be dull. Right? To And not all of them came back. If you die during this process or during, or you get sick, you're buried in the forest. And no more. And so these Quaker ministers, you know, golly, you know, I, and that was sort of my attitude toward it. I saw, it, you know, and they have a rival circumcision ceremony now, like the, the, some Quakers do, and they have it at a clinic and a hospital, and, you know, the, how many of them died? Zero, zero. And it sort of ends up more like vacation Bible school than anything else. But anyway, this guy that wrote this, Stanley, and guess it, he wrote, he is a Quaker, who is he's quaker but he isn't he was part of the traditional ceremony and i realized when reading his stuff it was in french journal that maybe i wasn't all aware of what was going on see the way he says it is difficult and it's tough and it's deliberately painful they deliberate it, it was hard especially when he was a kid but it's also the process that they have had for thousands of years of how they became adults. And so in this process, as you're doing this, as it's done, you thank the elder doing it, even though it's, it's very hard, because this is the gift. This pain is the gift that will allow you to become an adult, an equal to all of those around you. And he says that if a boy cries, now they've been so. What you do in this thing for weeks and weeks and weeks? They've been singing songs and dances, and they're getting ready. They're getting ready. They're getting ready. They've heard all the the stories and the the myths and the things. They're getting ready. They're getting ready. And then when it happens, you've been told, "Don't cry," right? You, there's special things for not crying. But what if one of them? These are. Eight-year-old kids, some of them, you know? What if one of them cries? Do they say, cry, baby? Look at the crowd. Abs- no way. They surround them. It could be 200 of them will surround this boy, all of them having gone through this same experience, and they say, don't cry, it's okay. It's okay. Actually, they say, it's okay to cry. We're all hurting. We're all hurting. We're all in this together. It's okay. It's okay. And they always do this ceremony at a river, uh, close to a river, because they want the blood, the blood from all of this is pretty bloody, to mingle in the river and the earth with this idea that all of the blood goes to the same river, to the same source, that it all mingles together, that there is a universal blood and a universal spirit. That's just incredible. He, the way he talks about it is profound. And when you are there in western Kenya, when you're around these folks, the Maragali, it's, it's hard not to smile. I mean, they just sort of live in blessing. They're some of, the, some of the poorest people on earth, and yet they go around smiling and just loving. Brother, brother, brother. You will never get as many friends. And yet, and yet there's a lot of love there, and yet when you talk to them further, and they love you and they, they treasure you, but when, when you talk to some of these folks further, when they're people that are sort of outside the circle, maybe people who don't think right, or perhaps they don't act right or love right, or maybe they don't they do things that they shouldn't be doing, and the energy changes. And it always sort of struggles with me. It's sort of like, you know, when you think about it, they talk, you. Know, I feel like brother, 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 and we give each other the hugs and things like that. Where does that circle stop? How do you draw that circle? Who's in and who's out? I talked to some guy a long time ago. He says, what we need to do is evangelize. We need to do this and this and this and this. And I said, golly, I I could have read. That's incredible. Do you have a relationship with God? He's like, yes, I do. I said, well, I don't know about all this other stuff, but let's start there at the relationship. You know, I was trying to think where in the Scripture I could focus on talking about community, on these ideas of Ubuntu and things like that. I really couldn't. I I could have focused on the community in Acts because they are amazing. They're like a perfect community. They're very communalistic, they give each other everything, they take care of each other. The Spirit is alive, there are miracles happening. I could have talked about that community. Or I could have talked about the Hebrew experience of the exodus and the travel there and the complaining and the Holy Land or the idea of if you go to the diaspora where they're weeping, they're like, this, like those young boys. They're weeping by the rivers of Babylon, crying for the lost Jerusalem. I could have talked about that, but what happened was there was like a vision, there was a light, there was something... That kept bugging me. And I believe me, I didn't want to be bugged. But God set, kept telling me, he said, you've got to talk about this particular scripture, and it is that of the lost sheep. Like, no matter where I went, it was, just, okay, lost sheep. And that is, and this is a story that is given to us both in Luke and Matthew. It's very interesting. It's one of the few of the lost parables that are in both. But what it is, is when Jesus talks, he talks to these folks as if they would have sheep. Like he just assumes you're going to have sheep. And he says, hey, when you have a lost sheep, when you find yourself with a lost sheep, don't you leave the 99 behind, these 99 behind you right here, just to go find that lost sheep? Won't you do that? And I guess they all were like, yeah, well, I guess we would do that. I mean, you'll stay up all night. You'll go across rocks and crags and call out. Until you find that sheep. And when you find that sheep, you're going to put that sheep tight around your shoulders and you're carrying them back. And when you get back, you are going to tell your friends and your family about it and you are going to celebrate that experience. And it's so interesting in, in... It's different in Matthew. In Matthew, this focus, the the idea of the shepherd is on the children and that we need to care and shepherd our children. But in Luke, it goes a little bit differently. He says that the same kind of celebration that you have when you're bringing back that sheep, you know that sheep we're talking about? When you bring back that same celebration, is the same thing just even on a teensy tail as it is in heaven when someone who is lost is found. When that lost sheep is found, there is a rejoicing by the angels in heaven that makes this stuff. See, when we do that, when we go out of our way to help those that are lost, including ourselves, that's where we find our community when we have that kind of care, when we have that kind of love, we have found true community as Yeshua sees it. When we go out and find the lost sheep, or we ourselves are that lost sheep, we have found Amundu. I am because we are. Now, I want to challenge us. So we talk about the shepherd, but let's talk about the sheep. How are we going to be as a community? We talk about the shepherd, but let's talk about those 99 sheep. How do they feel? Do they feel okay that they were left alone in the wilderness for a bit? Do they feel like, gosh, oh my gosh, she's back now. Gosh, it's less for us. Well, they were saying, I I was sort of hoping she'd stay away. Or are they celebrating? Are they rejoicing that one that is lost has returned? Let us celebrate this day. Let us celebrate Omundu, that we are because of each of us being.